You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Turn to James chapter 5. We've got this week and next week, and we're going to wrap, wrap up this letter that James wrote. Um, I hope that uh, I've helped you to understand it a little bit better, maybe apply it a little bit better, um, and be able to appreciate what James says and his writing style is very much different than Paul or John or Peter. Um, but uh, we can appreciate the fact that, that James kind of just gets to the point. And of course, that's exactly what we're going to see today. So James chapter 5, verse 7. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Father, we pause and we say thank you for your goodness and your grace. And Father, your grace has a way of finding us, pursuing us. Father, even when things are not going well, when things are hard, when it seems like the world is dark, your grace is a penetrating light that, that finds us right where we are. And Father, your grace will not allow us to have a pity party. Your grace will not allow us to, to compromise. Your grace and all that you've given us was for a purpose. And Father, that purpose was cleared out, spelled out clearly by your Son who said that we are to pick up a cross and follow you. That we are to be fishers of men. That you are making us you're growing us. You're changing us. And Father, the purpose in all of that is to bring glory and honor to you and see the kingdom expanded through Great Commission work. But Father, in that work, just as James experienced and Paul experienced and John experienced and Lord, you experienced, the work of the kingdom is not always easy. It doesn't always bring the applause of the world. In fact, Father, the message you've given us is complete opposite of what the world is saying. So, Father, James, through your hand and through the inspiration of the Spirit, has some things to say to us today. And, Father, it is timely because your timing is always perfect. So, Father, God, us in your word this morning. We pray that you're glorified and honored. And, uh, Father, we pray that above all things you're pleased with this church, the direction that we're going, the blessings that we're already seeing you pour out, the lives that we're able to touch. And that, Father, we would love well because we've been loved well. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen. James has something to say about a topic that, quite frankly, is not easy, patience. My goodness, the culture in which we live, patience is not seen as much as maybe what we've seen in the past. And quite frankly, our culture has conditioned us to not be patient. We have in, a, we have in our world and our culture this idea that whatever we need should be provided at that very moment and we shouldn't have to wait for anything. I want to start off this morning by, by giving an example because that's exactly what James is going to do, he's going to give us examples of patience, steadfastness, endurance. But I want to give you a good example that I think is front and center right now on some people that have been serving patiently and enduring patiently and doing an incredible work. It started all the way back in the 60s, as a matter of fact. Right around 1964, a business owner in, on, the Hawaiian, on the Hawaiian island, on the big island, a Catholic man who was very devout in his faith, he saw where the world was going. And he made a choice that there needed to be some kind of ministry, some kind of center that could help 
with women who were pregnant, who maybe were not intending to get pregnant but did, and were hearing what the culture was saying to them in that moment that that it's a whole lot easier just to abort that child and, and move on with your life. And so this, this guy had a radical idea. He realized that a lot of these folks weren't going to churches to seek any kind of counselor advice. So he started the very first pregnancy care center. And he started them all over the islands. And then as we got closer to 1971 and 1973 with the Roe versus Wade, which has been all in the news this week, more and more pregnancy care centers began to crop up. And then evangelicals began to see the the value of that ministry. They began to invest in that ministry. And as time would move on, eventually we'd have something called ultrasounds, and it would be available to these centers to be able to provide an ultrasound because they began to learn that if a, if a mother who's expected can see, see that this is a child, that she will choose life. So I can, I can give you a, a great example this morning of patience, of endurance, of people who've stood on the lines who've been hated and are probably hated today as much as they've ever been hated, is the local pregnancy care center. We have one right here in our community. And, and Ms. Helen Rogers has been involved in that ministry, not on here, but also in Fayetteville, and standing on the front lines for life. I know we have a lot of guests today, and I'm glad that you're here. Um, but I want to be very clear about something. And if you've been part of Hyde Park, you know for, that I, I try to be as clear as I can be. But I, I want you to understand and I want you to know that from your pastor's perspective and from this church's perspective, what happened on Friday was the right thing. The right thing. You may disagree. That's okay. That's all right. I still love you. But this church, for all of its history, has stood alongside the cause of the sanctity of human life. And we will continue to. It doesn't matter what kind of heat gets turned up. We will stand upon the clear teaching of Scripture, whether it be this issue or any other issue. We will not compromise. It does not matter to me if there's only five people in this building who are willing to listen. I will not compromise the clear teaching of Scripture. We have examples all around us of people who have patiently served, enduring hardship, enduring suffering for the cause of the gospel and for the cause of of Scripture and what it teaches. James is teaching to a group of people, a group of Jews who had come out of Judaism and put their faith in Jesus as Messiah. Now, I told you when we began this series that we don't have a lot of, of context on what James is teaching and why he's teaching. All we can tell is that through this book, we have seen that these people he's talking to are being persecuted. We didn't, don't really know why, but then when we get to chapter 5, we begin to see why. And we begin to see a little bit more context as to why these believers in Christ were being persecuted. So let's back up into chapter 5 to verse 1. And I want you to hear what's going on. And, and James, again, doesn't give us a lot of context of, as what's going on in this particular group of people, but in chapter 5 he does. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. And their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You, uh, you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. James says that what was going on and what was prompting him to write to these people and the persecution that they were enduring was at the hands of a group of wealthy people. These people apparently had a lot of power, they had a lot of wealth, they had a lot of farmland, they had a lot of assets, and they were employing Christians. These people who were Jewish, who put their faith in Jesus, these farmers were employing these people and putting them to work in their fields. But what was happening was, is they were taking advantage of the very people who were making them money. They were stealing the money from the workers. They were not paying them a fair wage. They were keeping back money from themselves. They were greedy. They were powerful. They were taking advantage of people who were very weak. As a matter of fact, many of the people that James is writing to are impoverished. And they were seeking work on the farms of these rich landowners, and these rich landowners were taking advantage of them. And James says... The fraud that you have committed against these workers are crying out. 
God has heard it. You have lived in indulgence. You have lived in the lap of luxury, not because you earned it, but because you stole it from someone else. You have taken advantage of the weakest people among you, and you will be condemned. But not only that, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. Apparently, these wealthy people saw Christians as weak, as people they could take advantage of. As a matter of fact, the world still views the church that way. The world still views the church as, as a bunch of weak people who, are, who have God as a crutch to get through life. These wealthy landowners were killing their own workers, these people who put their faith in Jesus. But what I want you to see is that last sentence in verse 6. It says, he does not resist you. In other words, James says that these Christians who were working for these landowners, they were not picketing outside the farms. They were not demanding higher wages. They were not outside with a megaphone blasting to the world how awful these farmers were. You know what they were doing? You know what these Christians were doing? They were showing up every day to work even in spite of the fact that they were being taken advantage of. Now that doesn't mean they're weak. What it means is they live by a different standard. They have a different worldview. So although they were being mistreated, these believers, these followers of Jesus would show up day in and day out. And don't you know that there were plenty of moments when these were believers were thinking to themselves, I am so tired of this. I'm tired of working 14 hours a day in the field and only getting a few pennies while they get rich. I mean, look, normal humanity would say that, that there's no reason for me to keep doing this, yet they did. They kept doing it because... Well, they had an ethic, a standard. So James writes to them, and this is what he says, verse 7. Look at these two words. These people who are being persecuted, these people who are being maligned, these people who are being hated, these people who are being killed, what does James say? James says two words. You're not going to like it. Be patient. I don't like that very much either, quite frankly. But yeah, we have it right in front of us. Be patient. James is going to say that uh, there's another undeniable characteristic of saving faith. Now, we've seen several things that James has taught us in his letter that he says that works that are not accompanied with faith is, is a dead faith. A saving faith is a faith that, that turns out intangible works in your life. It's observable. It's, you can see it, Right? James says, you can add this to the list, that the person who has tangible saving faith gives evidence of that genuine faith by simply being steadfast and enduring in the faith. They don't give up. They don't quit. They don't throw the towel in when things get tough. James says that the characteristic of true saving faith is that of endurance. I look across this congregation and I see a whole lot of people who've endured a whole lot of things and you were steadfast. James is going to say, we've got some examples that we can put forth. Obviously, Jesus being the greatest of all the examples. But here, James says, I want to give you three examples. Two of them come from the Old Testament. One of them comes from the garden. Listen to what he says. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Now, I'll come back to that phrase. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. So what is it about these people who continue to endure? What motivates them? Well, why, why is it that when storms come, they seem to, to be able to come out on the other side? Now, it doesn't mean they came out unscathed, but they stood and they endured. James says, well, let's take a look at the farmer. Let's take a look at the farmer. You know, this culture was very agrarian. They, they grew all that they ate. The, the, the culture of planting a garden was strong, so what a great example to use. So James says, remember the farmer, how he waits for the precious fruit of the earth. So the farmer, he's, he's got to till the soil. He's got to get the soil ready to put the seed in the ground if he's going to be able to reap a harvest for his family and his community. But in the early part of that harvest, or the early part of that planting season, 
If you can just kind of get this picture in your mind, it's been a dry, long summer. Uh, you can probably relate to that as you look at your yard, right? It's been dry. It's brown. It's all cracked up. There's not a lot of water in the soil. Well, in this arid region where James is talking about, where they were living, the ground would be dry and cracked, and it would be almost impossible to take your oxen out there and plow that field to be able to, to sow the seed. Even if you could, the seed wouldn't survive. So they, they counted on what was considered to be the early rains, and those rains would come in October and November. These farmers expected those rains, and they would wait patiently. that They wouldn't go out and start tilling until the early rains. Why? Because these early rains would just be soaked into the ground. It would make the ground soft so that they could go out and plow the field. Just like when it rains in my house right now, I can literally look at my window and see my grass turning green as it's raining. Have you noticed that? It's just soaking it up. So the farmers would have to rely on the early rains. If the early rains did not come, if the early rains were, were much less than they were the year before, then the farmer just has to do the best that he can, expecting that, that he has no ability to control this. So the early rains come, he tills the soil, he puts the seed in the ground. Then in April, March, April, we have the late rains. By that time, these plants have already broke through from the ground. They're getting close to beginning bearing fruit. And they need that extra big dose of rain to be able to produce a great harvest. So the farmer is waiting on the latter rains that would come in April so that they could have a tremendous harvest. So James says, be patient. Now, what is the connection between the farmer, his audience, and you and I? Look what he says, verse 8. You also, see that verse 8 where he says, you also? This is where he moves from the illustration back to us. He says, you also, be patient. Establish your hearts. You see that word establish? It means to have courage. Have a courageous heart. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. So what is James trying to connect for us with the farmer? Here's what you have to realize about the farmer. If you've got a garden, the same rings true for you. You can till the soil. You can provide fertilizer. You can buy the best seeds. You can get them in the ground at the right time. You can cover them up properly. You can fence off your garden to keep all the, the critters out of your garden. You can do all that you can. But listen to me. You have no control over the rains. You have no control over the harvest. You have no control over whether that seed is going to germinate or not. None whatsoever. Confession here. I said this at first service. I'm hoping I'm not going to be alone in this service. I wasn't in first. Am I the only one in here that tends to be a control freak at times? I sure would have, could use a shaking head right now. I'm not the only one, right? Right, I'm not. Okay, good. I have a tendency to want to control outcomes. And I, and I try to explain it away by being a good planner. <laughs> oh, I'm going to plan. Well, really what I'm saying is, is I'm trying to control. James says, to be patient means to accept the fact that you don't have control. And in that moment, choose to be courageous. Choose to trust a holy God who's in control. James is saying that like the farmer who's got to feed his family and feed his community, he is solely and completely dependent upon God sending the early rains and the late rains, allowing the seed to germinate like it has in the past, and then bear an actual, actual harvest. James says to you and I that in all those things we don't control, and can we all just admit there's a whole lot of things we don't control? As a matter of fact, if you make a bullet list of how many things you actually do control, you may be shocked. James says that in that moment, just like the farmer, what do we have to do? Be patient. But then James throws in this phrase, and he throws it in three times in verses 7 and following. He says, until the coming of the Lord, for the coming of the Lord. And then he says, the judge is standing at the door. I have had some conversations with many of you of, of late that you've, asked, you've been asking questions about, are we, are we getting close to Jesus' return? I mean, you're, you're seeing what's going on in the world, right? And you begin to think, man, I'm looking at the, how things are going here, and, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, we got to be a whole lot closer to Jesus stepping out than we were 10 years ago. And I would say, well, yes, certainly by default we're closer. Right? You'd be surprised at how many churches have abandoned the idea that Jesus is going to return. 
you'd be surprised at how many churches never even talk about it. As if the way things are, Lord help us, are just going to continue right on. That somehow this blue planet is going to be just like it is for all eternity. We're going to sit here and just read the benefits, and one day we'll die, and maybe somehow we'll come back in something else. There are churches teaching that this is all there is. Lord help them. Turn to First Thessalonians chapter 4. Let me tell you what James is talking about here. And again, I want to affirm, I want to affirm as, as clearly as I can that, that as a church and as a leadership, we are expectingly waiting for Jesus to come and wrap this thing up. We're looking for him. You may say that's foolish. You may say, well, it's been, what, 2,500 years? Listen to what Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's pick it up in verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Is that an encouraging word this morning? Only if you believe that Jesus is coming back. And it could be today. A trumpet, a cry, graves bursting forth, Jesus in the clouds, and I leave this mess behind, folks. Done. Wrap it up. Going to heaven. Done. Okay? But for those of you who reject the cross, you got a world of suffering coming your way. Go back to James. So James says the coming of the Lord. He says that an element of patience is the idea that looking, that we're looking for something grander, something greater. You know, for a prisoner who's been taken prisoner, maybe a prisoner of war. That prisoner of war holds on with a death grip to the reality that his brothers in arms is going to come and get him out. You read any of the POW stories where they've been sprung and brought to safety, they will tell you that the one thing they were holding on to inside that jail cell when everything else was taken away from them they were holding on that just outside that fence, just outside those walls, that there were men coming, women coming together, armed, who were going to come in and get them to safety and get them to freedom. And so it is, James says, with us, as we look to the farmer, knowing that we can't control everything, there's a whole lot of things that I can't control. In fact, there's a lot of things, a whole lot of things I can't control. I can't control people's perspective. I can't control what they think of me. I can't control what they say. I can't control what they do. But glory to God, one day I will stand before a king who controls it all, and he'll call the shots, and every knee will bow. And from that, from that I have hope. And I can have patience, and I can love my neighbor as myself because I know that Jesus has it all in the palm of his hands. He says, be like the farmer. Give up control. Trust the one who's been bringing the seasons about ever since the world was placed in orbit. Trust him with the unknowns. You know what happens when we try to control things? Well, then when we try to control things, and maybe I'm the only one who does this, but you get in this mindset of trying to control outcomes, and what do you do? Well, you start thinking about the what-ifs. Well, what if this happens? Or what if this happens? Or how about this? So you start going through the contingency plans. And then with each of those what-ifs, what do you do? You've got to have a plan in place. Now, in that moment when you're worrying and fretting and stressing about all the what-ifs, and you're coming up with bullet point lists, and maybe that's just in my head, the bullet point list of what you're going to do and how you're going to handle it, who are you trusting in that moment? You. You who are limited. You who have no idea what's coming tomorrow. You have no idea how God is working in that circumstance. And you're worrying and you're fretting and you're losing joy and you're getting angry and your temper's flaring and you got to do something, you got to do something, you got to control it. When in reality, God's saying, be patient. I got this. Maybe you're the person that in all of that is worried to death. And it all comes down to control, doesn't it? 
the Lord's been trying to grow me up out of that. I, I, I'm not where I used to be, but I'm not where he needs me to be yet. It's still a work in progress. That work he's begun in me, he will complete. James says, be like the farmer. Be like the farmer. Don't try to control everything because you don't, and you won't, and you can't. Be patient. But then he goes on to another example. Look at verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. So he said, be patient like a farmer. There are outcomes, the things you can't control. But also he says, be patient like the prophet. Now, who were the prophets? He's talking specifically about the Old Testament prophets. Some of them, we have whole entire books of their life. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Others, other prophets that were back there, God used for just a single moment in time. They may only have a few verses dedicated to them, but they all had the same calling. And that calling was to deliver the truth of God to a group of people or even to an individual. So God would set apart someone, send them with a message, and that message was just going to be embraced by the world, and this prophet was going to be loved and patted on the back and applauded for how great he is. No, not at all. The prophet is being sent with a message that is not going to be accepted. The prophet has to deliver some bad news, but in that bad news, he also delivers good news, but everybody focuses on the bad news, and guess what happens? They all turn against the prophet. And they want the prophet dead. They want the prophet to suffer. The prophet's the problem. The messenger's the problem. Make no mistake, God has spoken and says that you need to repent, that you're living in total rejection of all that is true and right. But at the end of the day, it was the prophet's fault. So what did they do to them? They would throw them in an empty well, leaving them to die. They would, they would string them up. They would beat them. They would run them out of town. And many of them were just killed on the spot. So get this, James says, let me give you an example, the prophets. The prophets suffered, the prophets had patience, but what were the prophets doing? And what is James calling us to do? Well, the prophets had a message. That message brought suffering, but they never compromised on the calling that God put on their life. James is saying, be patient with the message that I've given you. Be patient because the world is not going to accept it. Be patient and be steadfast and endure because the message you have is a message the world does not want to hear. As a matter of fact, they may hate you for it. At no other time in my 52 years of life, at no other point in my 52 years of life have I seen the church in the crosshairs of the world like I see it today. At no other time, maybe some of you who have some more life experience than I do, maybe you can see some times back maybe during the World Wars where maybe the church was, I don't know, maybe not accepted or, or, or you know, loved, but I can tell you in my lifetime where we stand today, right now, with what's going on right now in the world, the message that we believe, the message that we adhere to, the truth that we believe, that there is an absolute truth, that God has spoken. He's the creator of the universe. He has the right to say what is right and what is wrong. We align our lives to it. We don't mess with this word to make it fit our agenda. The world doesn't like that. So James says, be patient, endure suffering with patience, just like the prophets had to do as well. Uh, you know, we have to accept the fact that when Jesus called us out of darkness into light, when Jesus saved us, transformed us, nowhere along that journey did Jesus ever say, when you heard the gospel, when you heard it proclaimed, when you surrendered to him, there was no part in that message where Jesus said these words to you, if you will follow me, everything will be grand and glorious and comfortable in your life. If that's the gospel you believed, that's not the gospel of the New Testament. The gospel of the New Testament says, come with me and let's suffer. Come with me and go on a journey sharing a message that the world is going to reject. Come with me and let's walk together and I'm going to grow you up through some things. I'm going to teach you some things. I'm going to show you some things. You know what I found out? That it's in those times of suffering, when we speak a word for the Lord, it has the most impact of, of any other time. When we follow Jesus, when we put our faith in Jesus and we begin to follow him, the Bible calls that sanctification. It's simply a word that means we're going to grow up, mature in Christ. 
How, how, does, how does Jesus do that? How does the Holy Spirit do that in your life? Does Jesus grow you up by giving you everything that you want, making sure your bank account's full of money, making sure you have the best job and the trophy wife or the trophy husband, the perfect kids, the perfect grandkids, the big house, the boat, the three cars, all the toys. Does Jesus grow you up in him by giving you everything you want? Can we all agree? No. As a matter of fact, what that does is makes us spoiled brats. Right? For those of you who are parents, you know that, right? If you give your kids everything, even things you know is going to hurt them, what does that turn them into? Not very pleasant kids. Right? How does Jesus grow us up? You're not going to like the answer. (laughs) Through suffering. Through hardship. You see, hardship and suffering have this amazing ability to get us down to a place where we no longer can fix it. Some of you have some things in your life right now where you're exhausted trying to fix it. And the Lord has been saying all along, just trust me with that, be patient, trust me with that, endure, trust me with that. And the Lord is perfectly fine leaving us in some hard stuff to where we finally begin to talk with him about it. My suggestion would be is we talk with him earlier rather than later. So so be patient like the farmer, knowing that you don't control outcomes. Be patient like the prophets. Continue to speak the message of truth that God has given you regardless of the outcomes. And then the third example is a powerful one. Look at verse 11. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. The thing about folks that I've had in my life in this journey of people who stood steadfast, enduring with patience, they are blessed people. We are blessed to have them as part of this church. I'm blessed to have leaders in this church who've been through some stuff and endured some stuff. And man, they're a blessing to me. And they're a blessing to this community. But notice what he says. He says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. Well, that's kind of the understatement of the day. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job? Yeah, I'd say. Now, I'm not assuming that everybody knows the story of Job. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Job. There's an entire book dedicated to him. And it's an incredible book. It's a hard book to read all the way through. Um, A lot of folks just focus on the first few chapters and the last few chapters, but everything in the middle of that book is absolutely critical to understanding what Job endured. So here's what happens. You've got God up in heaven, throne room. Satan comes in. Satan comes to have a conversation with God. And the conversation goes something like this, and I'm paraphrasing it, so just stick with me. Satan says, hey, you see that guy down there, Job? He's one of yours, right? He's one of your people. Well, hey, God, I got, a, I got something I want to do. I guarantee you that if that guy right there has some trouble coming into his life, some pain in his life, if all of his comforts are taken away, he will turn around and curse you to your face. Now, let me just say at the outset here, that was a stupid thing for Satan to do. Stupid. Because Satan doesn't have all knowledge. He is not on the same playing field as God. So to walk up into God's throne room and issue a challenge like this was stupidity in the 10th degree. But because of his pride and arrogance, he did it anyway. God says, all right, let's just see. God already knowing the outcome. Says to Satan, here, you can can inflict Job. Well, boy, does Satan ever inflict Job? If you ever want to wonder, if you ever wonder about how Satan thinks about you, as someone who has their faith in God, look two places. I mean, you can look at several, but look two places. Look at Job and look at the cross. You'll get a clear understanding of what Satan thinks about you. So Satan inflicts all kinds of damage on this man. I'm talking physical damage, financial, lose everything. He loses his family. I mean, in a sheer small moment of time, Job loses everything that he would have, well, leaned to, trusted in to get through a time of trouble. But it's not just he just has physical pain. It's not just that he lost his family. It's not that he just lost all that he had. He lost it all at one time. And here's the thing. Job had no idea of the conversation that had happened in the throne room of heaven. He has no idea of what's going on. He has no idea that Satan is absolutely wrecking his life and that God had allowed him some leeway to do that. So where do we find Job? 
We find Job naked, no clothes, sitting on a pile of ashes where the community was burning their garbage. And Job is sitting there covered in sores all over his body. And Job would have only been able to find comfort in two ways, dogs that would lick the sores, or a piece of broken pottery that he finds in the trash heap and he begins to scrape these sores. This is Job now. One moment, he's the most wealthiest man in the whole region. Next thing you know, he's sitting in a pile of ashes and people are walking by going, yeah, where's your God now, Job? Hey, Job, that God that you worship, where's he at? Hey, Job, if if, if, if God is altogether loving and altogether powerful, and I'm paraphrasing, if, if God is all that, then, then why are you in this situation? And, and then some friends, some friends come along. I've had friends like this. Come along, and they want to help out. So what do they do? They say to Job, well, Job, you know the reason that you're suffering is because you've sinned. Ooh, that was encouraging, wasn't it? Yeah, it was encouraging to Job, too. And these three friends just keep absolutely just piling it on, piling it on, chapter after chapter after chapter. And Job is saying, look, I have confessed every sin that I have ever committed. I, I, I've, I've begged God to reveal anything else. There's nothing in me that I can point to, that God can point to, that, that has caused me to be in this situation. So although I don't understand it, and although I can't control it, I don't know what's going on here. Well, you and I do. We've read the book. We know what's going on. Job does not. 42 chapters of pain and anguish and hurt. There's one point right in the middle of the book where Job is about to throw in the towel. I've got it highlighted, circled, and I've got arrows pointing right at it. Job almost gets to the point where he begins to blame God for everything that's going on in his life. He doesn't cross that line, but boy, he gets really close. I would dare say that some of you this morning have some sores not physical sores, but sores on the inside. Hurts, pains of all kinds. And you're right there, aren't you? You're just right there of throwing in the towel. You're right there because of circumstances, life, social media, whatever it is, you're, you're, just, you're just right there. And you're wondering, where's God in all of this? And maybe you've prayed the prayer, hey, I've, I've begged God to forgive me. I've begged God to show me what I've done wrong. And yet there seems to be silence, and I don't know what to do with that. James says, be steadfast like Job. And then look what he says. He says, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Do you think of... When you think of the book of Job, do you think of compassion and mercy? Probably not. I mean, if you see the end of the book, yeah. But what about all that in the middle? Do we see a compassionate and merciful God in the life of Job? James says to his readers, to his hearers, they knew the purpose of the Lord. Now, what, what was the purpose of what was God doing? What was God doing in that moment where he allowed Satan to destroy everything in, in Job's life? What was God's reason for doing that? Are you ready for the reason? God never says. <laughs> and that's the frustrating thing about the book of Job. Literally, God never says why he did what he did. Now, we can have some speculation but he goes back to the farmer. The farmer didn't have any control. Job didn't have any control. But God was up to something. You know what happens at the end of the book? I mean, through that book, Job cries out to God in one part. He cries out to God and says, God, come down here. God, you come down here. Let's have a court trial. Let's put this thing on trial, and let's find out what's going on. Because, God, I don't understand, and I, and I want to know why. Have you ever been there? You want to know why? Why did I lose this loved one? Why did my kid run away from the faith? Why, why, am I, why am I diagnosed with cancer? Why is my marriage falling apart? Have you ever had those whys? No doubt Job was overwhelmed with why. And so he says, God, you come down here and basically you give me a reason for what's going on. You know what God says? God says, and this is probably like Rob Co vernacular here, who do you think you are? Job. 
hey, Job, where were you when I created the stars and hung them into place? Hey, Job, where were you when I created these vast animals and put them in the wilderness and put them in the water? Where were you when I created the Leviathan? Where were you when I created the forest and the stars? Hey, Job, where were you? Oh, I remember where you were, Job. You didn't exist. So you know how God answers Job? The way he answers you and the way he answers me when we're in the middle of the trouble, in the middle of the mess, and we want answers. You know what God says? God says, I'm bigger than all that. Just trust me. Just trust me. Look, even if I told you what was going on, you couldn't get your arms around it. Job, if I told you all that went down, Job, if I explained all of it to you, you would not be able to comprehend it. My ways are higher than your ways. My ways are unfathomable. So Job, take a look at that star and take a look at that sun and take a look at that moon. Where were you? You weren't here. I was. I called it all into existence. I called the shots. I'm in control. And quite frankly, Job, I don't owe you an answer. Job, I'm not your best friend. I'm your God and I'm your creator. Your breath in your lungs is there because I will it to be. Your heart is beating in your chest because I allow it to, Job. Job, what you need is a big vision of me. And when you have a big vision of me, your problems begin to be awfully, awfully small. You also realize that since you're not in control, what better place to give up control than a God who loves you, a God who adopted you, a God who's your father, your Abba? What better place to let go of some things, get on with your life, be happy, rather than making yourself miserable trying to control everything? It took 42 chapters of Job's suffering. So where is God's compassion and mercy in the book of Job? Well, I'm going to point out a few. God's mercy and compassion was evident that God was allowing Job to suffer for a very good reason. What was that reason? Don't know ultimately. But how do I know his reason was good? Because God is a good father. Look, I know, I know that doesn't satisfy the blank that you want filled in. I get that. You got blanks in your life about God, and you want God to fill those blanks in. But listen, we walk by faith and not by sight. We walk by the truth of God's Word and the evidence of His love and His creative work in our midst. And we walk in faithfulness to a holy God who loves you. And whatever He's up to, whatever He's doing in your life as a believer, He's up to something good. Because he's a good father. Paul said it this way in Romans 8, 28. You probably maybe memorized that verse. All things. Not a few things. Not a couple things. Not some things. But all things work together. For what? His glory, your good. Again, my paraphrase. So what is God up to with compassion and mercy? Well, he's allowing Job to suffer. Maybe, hey, here's possibly a reason. So that James would talk about Job write about it, and then remind us of Job and all his suffering, right? Maybe, maybe that's a, a good thing that God is doing through the sovereignty of his word and the power of his word being translated and given to us in English that we can see it right here in black and white. Here's another one. Did you know that God restricted Satan's influence and power over Job? Now, on the one hand, God allowed Satan to attack him, but Satan didn't have full reign there. Something you need to understand about God and Satan, they are not on the same playing field. Okay? Satan and God are not equals. And a lot of the movies portray it this way that Satan and God are equals and they're at war with one another. Sometimes Satan's got the best of God and sometimes God's got the best of Satan. That is absolute, complete ignorance and foolishness. Okay? Satan was created by God. Satan only has power that God allows him to have. And that power is limited. There will be a day when Jesus will take Satan by the nap of the neck, walk over, open up the pit of hell, and throw him in, and he will never be on your back ever again. Satan is completely under the sovereignty of God. He is not equal with God. He is a subservient to God. He can only do what God allows him to do, period. So God restricted Satan's influence and power over Job. In that moment where you're broken, in that moment where you're hurting, in that moment when you're under attack, did you know that even in the worst of that attack, God is still providing protection around you. He is still keeping the attacks at bay. He is still sovereignly controlling those outcomes. Third, God sustained him through the suffering. You look at Job's life, you read that entire book, and you, you have to come to the conclusion by the time you get to chapter 42, 
if we hadn't come to chapter 42, Job was going to be dead. I believe Job was right at the end of his life when he saw the vision of God and heard God's voice. I believe that Job was almost done physically. And isn't that how it often works that we're in that pit of despair? And right when you think it's at the worst place, you begin to see that God's been there all along. You begin to see the light. You begin to see the truth of the reality of the situation you're in. God sustained him through all of that. If you look back across your life, all the things you've been to, been through, you can see that God has sustained you. There have been many of times that I could have checked out. I've given God a laundry list of reasons why I should quit. Why I should quit the ministry. Why I should quit pastoring. I've said to God, God, I'd rather go back and pull wire and run conduit. As most of you know, I was an electrician before I was a pastor. And I've tried to go down that path many a time. You know what God says? <laughs> Be patient. Be patient. I'm at work. I'm going to sustain you. And you're not done until I tell you you're done. There's work for you to do. And you're not throwing in the towel. Fourth thing where we see God's compassion and mercy is God made Job a better man through the suffering. You look at Job after chapter 42, and you look at Job before, and you look at Job in between. Who's the Job we see at the end of the book? It's not the same Job we saw at the beginning. Here's a man who is, this is even before the restoration of his wealth and his family and all that. Before all that, Job realizes that God is all that he says he is. And in that moment, Job says, God, I am sorry. I repent in ash. I am, I am a broken man before you. I had, I had no idea that through all of this, that through all of this, you were in control. So Job repents. Job's a better man. You're going to be a better man or a better woman as God brings you through what you're going through. Our church is going to be a stronger church as God brings us through whatever we have to face. As we stand upon God's word, as we stand upon the truth, as we live that truth out, there will be attacks. This church will be attacked. We will be. Count on it. It's going to happen. The more we go out in our community and pray with people who are broken, the more we be about Great Commission work. Do you think for a moment that Satan's just going to sit on the sidelines and go, oh, well, no big deal. He will target this fellowship. He will come after us. He will come after your leaders. He will come after. He does not sleep. He does not slumber. He wants to destroy. He wants to divide. He wants to tear down. As long as we stand upon the truth, he's coming for us. But greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. The truth does not change. And God is at work in our community, and we want to join him in that work regardless of what it costs us. Why do we go out on Sunday evenings? Why do we, why do we go out? Why are we committed to pray for 6,000 homes? Is it because we want to brag and say we pray for 6,000 homes? No. We want to be out in the community where people are hurting and broken, broken so we can love them, pray for them, connect with them, point them to Jesus. That's why. It's exactly what Jesus told us to do, to go. Make disciples of all nations. So all through the book of Job, we see the compassion and mercy of God. And so it is in your life with whatever you're facing. I am thankful for those who have endured. I'm thankful for those who have stood. I'm thankful for those who just simply will not throw in the towel. Thank you for you. Thank you, because you're an example to me. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your commitment to the gospel. James says, look at the farmer. He, he doesn't have control, neither do you. What does James say? James says, be patient and steadfast. James says, look at the prophets. They were beaten, strung up. Hated, run out of town for the cause of the message. What does Job say? Job says, be patient, be steadfast, do not compromise the truth. You keep delivering the message that God has given you. 
James says to look at Job's life, the suffering, the loss, the almost ending of his life, and all of that, Job saw God as big and holy and powerful. And in that moment, James says, be patient. God is at work. He's in control. You don't have to be afraid. You can be courageous in whatever you're facing. Because it's passed through the hands of a holy God before it came into your life. And God's up to something good in your life. But please, 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 don't ever let these words become reality in your life. You may be saying it, you may be thinking it, but don't take the next step. Don't move in the direction that says, this is too hard, I'm done. There's a whole lot of people who've thrown in the towel. Don't be one of those people who used to be. Don't be one of those people who used to be on fire for Christ. Don't be one of those people who used to be walking with Jesus Walk with him now through the ups and the downs, through the good and the bad. Be patient, be steadfast, because it is a characteristic of genuine saving faith. Father in heaven, you are glorious and you are grand and you are majestic and you are powerful and you are beautiful beyond anything we can imagine. And Father, I, I would have to imagine that there are people here in that spot today that are about ready to give up. Maybe their marriages, maybe their family, maybe their job, maybe whatever it is because the pressure has just grown to be too much. Maybe they've been attacked for their faith. Father, we pray that in that place, just like Job, they would see you high and lifted up. Just like the prophets who refuse to compromise the truth that they will not buy into the lies of our world. But Father, know that they're accountable to you and you alone. And just like the farmer, to let go of trying to control everything and trust in your sovereign grace. Father, that is the pathway to blessing. It is the pathway to joy. It is the pathway of having a calm spirit. It is a pathway to not overreact in every single thing that comes into our life. And it's a pathway that lets go of us trying to control every single aspect of our life. Father, you have a word for that. It's faith. Father, if there are some here today that either don't know you by faith or have put their faith in you but have wandered away, this moment, this song, this time is for them. I pray, Father, that between you and them, they could have a conversation about where they stand with you. We ask it in the powerful name of Jesus Christ the righteous, who is soon coming again. We ask it in his name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram.